215. Picking up at 215. Wait, pick them up in 215, not at 215. I don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit's moving. It might be 215. August just asked me before I walked up here. She goes, Daddy, why do you always preach long sermons? I was like, I don't think they're that long. I mean, they're no longer than you. There's some churches that go 40 minutes, 45 minutes in the sermon. We might let, let that happen, become the norm. What do y'all think about that, right? <laughs> that was good. Oh, I love that. Y'all never been more awkwardly quiet than I've been in my entire time here. If you are a guest, that's just kind of the vibe here. We just love each other. All right? We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, all right? It's the very beginning of Mark. Hear a little bit about old John the Baptist. Here we go. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger. Oh, it's on the screen. All right, well, just listen, because it's a good word. You can pull it up on your phone if you want. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sin. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and honey, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. That's Mark 1 through 8. If you want to go back and read it, if you were making a note in your phone, Mark 1, 1 through 8. We're in the second week of our series um, called Christmas Like Kids where we are trying to just think about all the fun things and all the ways in which uh, the wonder of children helps enhance this season that is often inundated with stressors and whatnots. And so last week we said, what does it mean to enter Advent like a child? What does it mean to have that anticipation? Uh, this morning I would like to preach about the decorations and the preparations. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Do you know why Advent calendars were invented? You know what I mean by Advent calendars, right? They're the calendars where you have in your house to help you count down from the first day of December until Christmas Day. At our house, we have two Advent calendars because we have two children who both wanted one. And so we have a superhero Marvel advent calendar and we have a Disney princesses advent calendar. And each morning um, during this month, our kids wake up to go find where their elf Toodles has rested after coming back from his visit to the North Pole. And then um, they take out their calendars and they go and there's a little storybook for each day and they pull it out and then we'll read it that night. There are thousands of different types of advent calendars out there. Maybe you have like a family heirloom one you pass down or you open the doors and there's, maybe there's the ones with the chocolate you can get at Costco. I saw those. I saw other ones at Costco too. Those are not in our house. 
There are a thousand different types of these things, um, but they were invented for one purpose. They were invented so that parents would have a reprieve from kids asking, is it Christmas yet? Right? They're there so that whenever our kids ask, well, when is Christmas? I can say, go look at your advent calendar and you tell me and we'll make it an educational experience, right? You can count. One, two, three. You can learn a little bit more about how calendars work. If August asks me, Daddy, how many days is it until Christmas? I can say, well, how many books are left in your calendar? And so these people, who, whoever it was that invented the advent calendar, I didn't do any research to find out. I'm just assuming that either they were parents themselves or people who worked with children. They must have known about the ability of kids to keep a singular focus on one thing for an infinite amount of time. If a kid has something they want, there's nothing that's gonna make them forget about it. Have you ever experienced that? My son is three, and about a month ago, we were at his grandparents' house in Montgomery, and he saw a commercial um, for a Ninja Turtle car. He didn't say anything during the commercial or even after the commercial. He's never mentioned anything about it. And we've never seen that commercial again. But the other night, we're laying in bed, and out of nowhere, he goes, Daddy, did you get my Ninja Turtle car? <laughs> As if like, he had not stopped thinking about it for an entire month. It's amazing how there are things that kids just never forget. And this Christmas season takes that superpower and multiplies it by a thousand. Their singular focus is, it's like they're an elephant and a computer hard drive and a talking parrot all rolled into one. <laughs> Nothing's gonna slip by them. And it's kind of funny. Uh, a kid around Christmas though, reminds me a little bit of John the Baptist that we just read about in the scripture. And talk about focus. One track mind. The man lived with a single goal to point people to Christ. Perhaps you're familiar with this text. Uh, we typically read it on this day every year. It's a story of John crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. And centuries before John was born, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. It will be a voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And that messenger ended up being John the Baptist. He was out there in the wilderness preaching and baptizing, and people were traveling from far away to come out and to hear what he had to say. You know, there's a, a whole musical number in the play Godspell devoted to this one moment in the Bible. A horn blares and the song begins with this lone singer singing, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. That's my audition for Godspell. If there's any casting directors in here, you just let me know. But I just wanted you to get the sense of that line because that's all the entire song does over and over and over. That one line, it starts with one person and then other people join in and then it becomes a whole Broadway number, you know, where people are dancing and singing and for three minutes, it's nothing but prepare ye the way of the Lord. And as cheesy as you may or may not find Godspell, I don't know your preferences on Broadway musicals. I think the entire three-minute musical number that sings the same line over and over again is a pretty accurate theological representation of John's intention. I mean, that's basically what John the Baptist did. He appeared in the wilderness preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins and he had one focus, 
His whole message was about one thing. The Messiah is coming and he's gonna be awesome. It reminds me of one of my favorite theologians, a man named Karl Barth. He was a, a German theologian in the early to mid 20th century. And uh, uh, I think it was the first or second advent I was here. I, I used this same art piece and it, it reminds me so much of this particular text. See, Bart wrote some of the most important theological works of the modern era. He influenced in a major way the, the direction of Christian thinking. And in his office above his desk, he had an art piece. It was uh, this one. It's really a miniaturized reproduction of a piece of art. The original piece um, is a huge altarpiece that resides in a museum in France. I mean, it's, it's, it's taller than I am on the stage from where you are, and it's, it's, it's just this massive piece of art. Uh, it's titled Eisenheim Altarpiece. It's by Matthias Gruenwald, a, a German artist. And it depicts various moments in Jesus's life. These are actually panels that fold in and fold out and on the back there's different things. And so there's all sorts of different parts of Jesus's life in this piece of art. But this largest portion is this center piece here where you see Jesus on the cross. And to his right, you have Mary, his mother, crying and being comforted by the disciple. And then here on Jesus's left is John the Baptist pointing to Jesus which, if you think about it, it's a little bit strange because John the Baptist wasn't at the crucifixion. I mean, you remember how the story goes. John was beheaded well before this even happened in the Bible story. But Gruenwald, he puts him there as a symbol. It's a symbol that Jesus is the one about who the prophets foretold. He's there holding the Old Testament in his hand and saying, that's him. That's the one that this is all about. He's there pointing to the Savior, Jesus. And the reason why Bart had this particular piece of art above his desk is that he believed the purpose of his life was to be like the pointer finger of John the Baptist in this painting. All his writing, all his teaching, all the work of his life were simply to point people to Christ. He even said, I do not think I'm nearly the man John the Baptist was, nor will I ever be. I just hope to be like his finger, pointing people to Jesus. Amen. I tell you what, that sense of purpose that John the Baptist and even Karl Barth had is something I think that we all hope to find. I mean, how nice does it sound to have such a clarity of purpose, such a focus of vision? I, I think about it in two different ways, really. I think about it in the grand sense of like knowing our calling, about knowing what's the best thing we can do with our lives, about our vocation and how we're spending our time and, and how are we making the world better. I think about that, having that sense of focus, purpose, uh, uh, just calling, it matters for how we live our lives, but also think about it even more narrowly. Specifically to this sermon in this series, I think about that desire to have some sense of focus, some sense of clarity in these everyday moments and in these seasons of life. I feel it most acutely during this month of the year, this desire I mean, I mean, it is this month that we are inundated with decorations and preparations, where we are split between parties, parties and purchasing presents. 
I mean, doesn't it seem like during the month of December, we have more of a divided attention than the entire rest of the year? And don't you yearn to be able to enjoy this season like a kid? With that singular focus, reveling in the excitement of the coming Christmas day. I mean, how many of you laughed when you heard that this Sunday, the candle we light is the candle of peace? How many of you feel flooded with peace in your every day? I mean, did you have an internal chuckle when Clem read, <clears throat> we light in knowing full well that peace is elusive and sometimes completely absent. I'm surprised we didn't get more amens at that part. When our attention is split in so many different directions, peace does seem like an illusion, doesn't it? Like, it's a thing we know is out there somewhere, but we can't find the focus to experience it. I would like to offer one thing this morning related to this struggle, this recognition that we want singular focus, we want to be a little less distracted, and yet it seems like we're pulled in every direction. As preachers, we often like to give lots of take-home nuggets. Here's some things for you to remember. The, uh, we, when the classic structure of a sermon is three points in a poem at the end, you know, they teach us in seminary to, to say what you're going to say, then say the thing, and then just remind everybody what you said. I don't have any of that this morning. I got one thing for you. One thing to which everything else pales in comparison. You are not the savior. Let me say it again, because I know that might not sound very climactic. Sounds kind of obvious, right? You already know that to be true, don't you? But it's amazing how many times you forget. You are not the Savior. John knew he wasn't the Savior. I mean, of course he knew he wasn't the Savior. For crying out loud, he was walking around in camel's hair and eating bugs. Or as DC Talk said in their song, Jesus Freak, he was a man in the desert with a tat on his belly and it wiggled around like marmalade jelly and it took me a while to catch what he said because I had to measure them with his belly with his head. Y'all didn't know I could go that fast, did you? Y'all know that a DC Talk Jesus Freak song is about, that, that line's about John the Baptist. If you didn't know that, now you do. But John was a weird dude, even weirder than I am. And even if he was as handsome as a prince, I bet even still he would know that he wasn't the savior. He was there to point to somebody else and he was at least able to let go of the responsibility to think that it is all hinged on him. I think the same was probably true of Bart. I didn't know him, but I mean, he could have made it all about himself. He could have said, hey, everybody, follow me. I'm so smart, I've got all the answers. Instead, he said, I don't want it to be about me at all. I just want to be the pointer finger. Showing people the way to Jesus. Some of us, have placed burdens on our shoulders that are impossible to fulfill. Some of us believe that Christmas will be incomplete if we do not rake ourselves over the coals of activity so that everybody else can have and do all the things. We can't focus on any one thing because we're so concerned about doing and being all the things. Sometimes we think, there would be no Christmas if it were not for us. We have to wrap everything. We have to decorate everything. We have to prepare everything. And if we don't do all of it, none of it will be good. But friends, you are not the savior. 
there would still be Christmas without any of us. Jesus will still have been born and he will still have come to bring peace on earth, even if it might elude you. But you know, in the book of Isaiah, when God was prophesying about this, when God is saying that he's gonna send a messenger to prepare the way for the coming savior, he offers that word as a word of hope. It's a word of hope to, to a response from Isaiah's plea. That chapter begins by Isaiah saying, crying out to God, comfort, oh comfort your people. God's promise of a messenger of John the Baptist to come were words that were meant to comfort those most in need, those who had the biggest longing. Friends, I I think there are some of us here today that need to know that God desires to comfort you. That need to know that it's not all up to you. When Christ says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that might be especially important for you to hear today. Because if you don't get every decoration done and every preparation completed, it's okay. Christmas is still gonna happen. If your presents are running late, Christ will still be born. If you just can't make it to that party this week because you, ha- you feel like you haven't seen your family in the season that's supposed to be about Jesus and family, then just stay home. Amen. They'll understand. And if they don't, get new friends. When you discover that you are not the sole author of your kids or your family's happiness, maybe then you'll find that peace. That peace that we light a candle about. Peace on earth can mean a lot of different things. We believe that that Christ came to bring peace. We hope it's a peace that ends all wars. We hope it's a peace that brings an end to sorrow and suffering. We hope it's a peace that passes understanding. But many of those things are not only beyond our control, they might not even be part of the experiences we will have in this life. But I do believe that Christ's peace is still for you and for me. God wants us to experience peace on earth, to experience the peace of what it's like to wait in Advent. And I believe it begins by recognizing that God loves you and wants what's best for you. That God desires to comfort his people in their times of need. And that you are not that God. You are not called to be that God for your family. God is God and we are not. And I thank God for that. When you can accept that there are some things beyond your control and some things that were never even your responsibility to begin with, maybe then we can find that childlike focus, being able to see with absolute clarity, the things that matter the most and experience the joy in this world and the peace on earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.